0: Good morning. So glad to be here uh, with you. Thanks for letting me be here. Uh, some of you may know that November is National Adoption Month, and there's been some families, even here in our own church community, that just this last week finalized adoptions. If you know uh, Brian and Andrea Mann, Brian is the pastor of Robust Facial Hair and Communications. They their little daughter Eden there that they just uh, adopted this week, and I think they're on vacation for Thanksgiving. But we want to celebrate with them and celebrate that reality. And there may be others of you as well. Just know that we uh, were aware of that and and thankful for that. And I'm thankful that Jeff uh, allowed me to to take a break here from our normal uh, pattern and and actually talk about adoption today. And so we're going to look at the scriptures to see what God says about the topic of adoption. And I just want to be really transparent that I've got two goals today, two things that I'm hoping for, two things that I've been praying for for the last many weeks. The first is that everybody here today would leave convinced, if they didn't come in this way, convinced of the centrality of spiritual adoption to salvation. To see that adoption is central to salvation, central to the very gospel. And then secondly, that everybody here would leave convinced of the utter necessity of civil adoption as a modern expression of Christian love. So that's it. That's my agenda. I I believe it's an agenda that is formed by the scriptures and consistent with the scriptures. But I want you to know that I don't want there to be any sense of emotional manipulation today. I don't want there to be any sense of uh, guilt or shame or um, ought to's. What I do hope, though, is that together as a community, we would just do two things. That we would look down at our Bibles and that we would look up at our world and be open to what God would want to do in our lives. Change our hearts and perhaps even change our lives dramatically through that. So, with that being said, if you would, stand with me, and I'm going to read from our passage today, Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, starting at verse 14, the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Rome, and he says, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat. The first observation I want to make in this passage is, is what I mentioned a moment ago. And that is that adoption is central to salvation. Adoption is central to the very gospel. Look at verse 14. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. What we see here is that adoption is how we come into the family of God. If you have professed faith in Jesus, if you have believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead, if you're trusting solely in the finished work of Christ on the cross for your reconciliation to the Father, your place before God, You were brought into the family through adoption, which means that you are an ex-orphan. I don't know if you think about your identity that way very often, but all who are in Christ are ex-orphans. The great theologian pastor J.I. Packer says in his book, Knowing God, that of all the gifts of grace, adoption is the highest. He calls adoption the highest gift of grace. In fact, he goes on to say that our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. The ceiling of our understanding of Christianity, the work and way of Jesus. The ceiling is our grasp of adoption. That's how central it is to the very gospel. Adoption was a central metaphor that God had in mind even before He created a single person or plant or planet, before a family unit ever existed, before any human had it in their mind that they could conceivably take someone who was not part of their family, bring them into their family and treat them as though they were part of the family. Before that ever happened, God had chosen adoption as a central metaphor for the gospel to depict what God is doing in redemption and the way that he brings sons and daughters into his family. So I say that adoption is central to our salvation for at least three reasons. The first, the Bible clearly teaches it. The Apostle Paul clearly states in Ephesians 1, which we looked at a few weeks ago, Pastor Jeff took us through that. Paul says there, writing to the church at Ephesus, that in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. This means that adoption was not plan B. It was not reactive. Before time began, God had it in his mind. By the purpose of his goodwill, he foreordained, predestined, that adoption would be the vehicle and the mechanism by which he would reconcile a fallen and sinful world to himself. So that's the first reason that I would say that adoption is central to salvation. The second is that adoption was essential to Jesus' qualification as the Messiah. If you looked at Galatians 4, you would see a parallel passage to Romans 8, what we read. Paul makes essentially the same point, but he has a phrase in there that's a little bit different. He says that Jesus was born of a woman. Now, doesn't that seem kind of truistic, a little bit obvious that he was born of a woman? If someone was born, they were born of a woman, right? That's that's pretty much how that goes. And yet, he makes a point to say that. What, What is he saying? Well, one, he's pointing to Jesus' divinity. See, the first century Jews would have had expectations about what the Messiah would look like. In other words, what would be the litmus test for authenticity for someone who would come and claim to be the Messiah? And the Hebrew scriptures contain prophets and prophecies that pointed people to looking for the Messiah saying this is what the Messiah will be like and one of those expectations would have been that he was born of a of a virgin right and so when Paul says that he's born of a woman that is to be distinguished from born to a woman and a man as is normal and natural so he's pointing to Jesus divinity but you know what else is interesting in 2nd Samuel 7 there would have been basis for another expectation of the Messiah besides the virgin birth that we see and Isaiah and the Jews would have said you know what this Messiah is going to have to be a descendant of David of King David he's going to be part of the lineage of David. Now if you've if you've been to Christmas services or or been through sermon series in the Gospels or read the Gospels you know that the Gospel writers deal with with Jesus's lineage. Now your expectation would be that if the Messiah was to be descended from King David and Jesus was born To Mary, but had no biological earthly father, then the gospel writers would trace Jesus' lineage through Mary, right? That would be the logical expectation, and yet that's not what they do. The Princeton theologian J. Gresham Macon points out that both in Matthew 1 and Luke 3, the gospel writers trace Jesus' ancestry not through his earthly biological mother, but rather through his legal adoptive father, Joseph. So that's the second reason that I would say that adoption is central to salvation. God uses the mechanism of adoption not only to predestine us to sonship, but also to qualify his very son Jesus as the messianic fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. The third reason I would say that it's central to salvation is that adoption is the only way that the family of God grows. In Romans 8, Paul is writing to Church at Rome, a largely Gentile audience, and he says, you are brought into the family of God through adoption. And then in Romans 9, he points out that the Jews who are in Christ are brought into the family of God through adoption. Now, in New Testament terms, there's only two categories of people: there's Jews and Gentiles. Gentile, that word just means not a Jew. And so if Gentiles are brought in through adoption, and Jews are brought in through adoption, that means that everybody who's brought in is brought in through adoption. That's the only way the family of God grows. And so that's the third reason I would say that adoption is central to the gospel, central to salvation. But adoption is also central to our expression. Look in verse 15. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. If you've been coming here regularly, you've probably heard Pastor Jeff talk about this word Abba. It's an Aramaic word that Jesus used. It means something like daddy or papa. Now what's interesting is that Paul, the author of of this letter he actually takes the word Abba and uses it. Now, the, the thing that he typically does is translate Aramaic that would have been used by Jesus into Greek. Because his audience would read and write and speak Greek. So why does he keep this Aramaic word in into a letter for people who don't speak Aramaic? I think it's because it's such a privileged word. It's such a unique word of intimacy. See, Jesus uses the word Abba to address his father. And Jews at that time would, would not use that kind of language when speaking to God. You may recall that Jews wouldn't even say the holy name of God. They wouldn't write it out. They would abridge it and use a hyphen because it was so sacred. And yet here we have Jesus speaking with utter intimacy to his Father. And what the New Testament church is saying is saying that the intimacy with which Jesus addressed God the Father, we now have that same level of intimacy with God. And so the very word that Jesus used to address his father, we want to use that word. We want, to, we want the same sounds to come from our lips because this is the same access to the father that we have. So it's, it's, um, it's like how you've got lots of different things that people might call you, right? They may call you by your legal name or you may have a nickname or a professional title. Uh, there's some friends in the church here when I first met their oldest son, he couldn't pronounce my name, Christian but it came out chicken, so to him, I'm Mr. Chicken. So there's all kinds of things that people might call you, right? But there's one kind of title, one sort of address that's unique. There's only a few people in the world who would call me daddy, That's reserved for my children. Now, our our youngest son, Benjamin, the the third of four in our home right now, uh, that's him right there, he came into our home first uh, as a foster child, and he was with us for a year as a foster child. And then Last year in October we adopted him so he's been our full legal son for a year. So what happened when he was adopted is we said to this boy you are now part of our family. You now have a new family, a new identity, you have a new name and you have full access to this family and everything that is ours is now yours and you can address me as daddy. Which previously would have been a title that only my two biological sons would have used. And so now every night when I come home from work and I pull into the driveway, little Benjamin is sitting in his high chair and he looks right out the kitchen window. And when he sees my truck pull in, I can hear him screaming through the kitchen glass, through the the glass of my truck, screaming, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. That's the access that we have through adoption. Abba, Father, is our cry via adoption. So, it's central to our expression. It's also central to our experience. Look at verse 16. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, and co heirs with Christ. So, by our adoption and the indwelling of the Spirit, we receive and experience our truest identity as children of God. The very Spirit of God indwelling us, speaking words of assurance to us You're mine. I love you, I'm for you, all that I have is yours. Our adoption is central to our experience, but there's another aspect to this experience that's a little bit unexpected. Look at the last half of verse 17. So Paul says, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. That's a really interesting if, isn't it? I mean, why would he add this qualifier afterwards of such seeming assurance? Is Paul saying that it's by our suffering that we earn a place at the table? Is he saying that it's only by suffering that we would qualify as children to be adopted by God? Not at all. That would be very inconsistent with his entire argument in the New Testament. It's just the opposite. Our status of ch- as children of God, our status as adopted children of God, is secured solely by the finished work of Christ. However, When you're adopted, you gain not only a new legal position, but you also gain a new, you gain a new heritage. You gain a new family culture. You gain new uh, habits and rhythms. So I know a family that their deal is on Thanksgiving dinner. What they do is everyone at the table, uh, they kick off the Christmas season by wearing ugly Christmas sweaters at Thanksgiving dinner. So if you get adopted by that family, you're going to wear an ugly Christmas sweater to Thanksgiving dinner. That's the, that's the rhythm of that family. And just so... What we see here is that along with our new legal position, our new status, we have this new family tradition and culture. And it includes suffering. Suffering will be a confirming part of our life that speaks to our membership in this family. See, your adoption was difficult. Your adoption was hard. Your adoption was punctuated with suffering. Because the Bible says that you are at enmity with God, far from God. And it wasn't easy for God to bring you in to his family. What it took was him sending his very son to die on the cross. And it took the son in willing obedience to the father, laying down his life and suffering at the hands of evil men so that you could gain an inheritance with him in the family of God. Adoption itself, the very model of adoption in the Christian life is marked by suffering. And so we see it here in James 1. James says that caring for orphans in their distress or in their affliction is the kind of pure religion that God truly cares for and we know that's true in part because we see that that's what God embodies when he adopts us when he pursues us even to the cross. Adoption then is a necessary expression though not the only expression of Christian love and it's a God designed reflection of this gospel reality. I've tried to make the argument that adoption is central to salvation central to the gospel. And by analogy, by extension I've tried to argue that actually adoption, civil adoption is a necessary expression of Christian love modernly. And I know a lot of people when you start to talk about civil adoption as an analog of the spiritual, they would say, "Hey, look, I'm really glad that there are people who adopt, but that's just that's just too hard for me." Or I'm really glad that there are families who foster, but I just could never do that because I would get too attached. You know who else that's true for? everybody who's ever adopted or fostered every single person who's walked into that has not been strong enough equipped enough ready enough it's difficult inherently so so I would say if that's your objection in your heart or if that's your um you know if you're skeptical about that or if you go like yeah that's good for someone else I would just say you're absolutely right in the objections or the concerns that you're raising you're 100 percent on point it is full of difficulty and suffering and complexity. And there's absolutely no guarantee that in caring for vulnerable children or adopting a child that there's going to be a storybook ending or that there isn't going to be all kinds of new uh, difficulty and drama that goes along with that. But what we know from the scriptures is that that's okay. That shouldn't actually be a foreign expectation to us because that, that's exactly how we would describe our adoption into the family of God. You can provide care for orphans without adopting them. Absolutely, lots of ways that we can care for orphans without adopting them. But you know what you can't do? You can't provide conversion for an orphan without adopting them. I'm not talking about spiritual conversion. I'm talking about conversion of their status, of their identity. So the man family, for some period of time, Eden was in their home. and And they were caring for her because the state said, she can't be safe and healthfully cared for by her biological family or whatever her origin was. I don't know. At some point, the state terminated whatever uh, parental rights existed. And at that point, she became a ward of the state in the care of the man family. At that point, they're doing orphan care. But then this week, they've adopted her. Do You know what that means? She's not an orphan anymore. She's now their daughter. They're not doing orphan care anymore. They're just parenting their daughter. We can care for orphans in a lot of different ways, but we can't provide conversion of identity aside from adoption. It's central to the gospel and I think it's a necessary expression of Christian love. So if, if I've argued convincingly at all to this point, if you're even kind of with me, then maybe the next question you're asking is, okay, well, what does this look like? What's our response? How do we, what are we supposed to do to sort of incarnate this theological truth? Well, the first thing I would say is it's helpful to reframe how we think about this because this is not just a difficult duty that is being laid upon us this isn't some moral Christian obligation um, though there may be an element of duty or obligation in it that's that's not all it is and that's really not the best way to think about it this is a central metaphor for the very gospel you know what makes for a good metaphor a comparison point that hearers understand so for instance if I was trying to make a point or help you understand something I wouldn't say you know what it's like it's like when you're on the Mars rover and you're taking soil samples. Because nobody here has ever done that, right? So that's, that's not a good metaphor. It's also not a good metaphor because it's not a metaphor. That's actually a simile for any of you English majors out there. No one caught that in the first two services. Okay, so the, the better use of figurative language would be to, to say, you know what this thing is like? It's like when you're stuck in rush hour traffic on I-45. Because everybody here probably has had to endure that, right? That's, that is an analogy that you're going to understand and relate to. God has given us here a metaphor. Adoption is a metaphor for his redemptive work in the world. And he's inviting us into it. So by doing orphan care, and specifically by adopting, we, have, we, we will gain the right experience to fully understand what God is saying. The, the language and the concepts that he's chosen before time began. To reveal to us what his redemption is like. And the mechanism by which we're brought into his family. When we're faced in the scriptures with strong metaphors. Like marriage. If you hear here this summer. We said that marriage is a living metaphor of the gospel. When we enter into marriage. We understand an aspect of God's character and love. And relationship to us. In a way that we didn't before. And adoption is the same way. When we're confronted by these strong metaphors. I think we would do well to consider Walking into them. There's so much joy for us there. There's so much revelation of God's character when we walk into those. It's how we enter three-dimensionally into what God is trying to explain to us. You know, C.S. Lewis said, we don't merely want to see beauty. We want to enter into it. We want to become a part of it. That's why, that's why places like Disney World exist because we want to experience the magic. We don't want to just hear about it, right? What would be better? If I were just to try to... to to describe to you Water Lilies, the painting by Monet? And I described it and I described the the colors and the texture and you tried to get a mental picture of it. Or would it be better if I just gave you a round-trip ticket to New York City and you could go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art and you could stand in front of Monet's painting and look at it yourself? What would be better if I were just to try to describe to you the Texas sheet cake that I have at home with vanilla bluebell ice cream or invite you over to actually eat it with me, to partake in it? That's what this is, it's an invitation to enter into what God is, what he's doing and what he's trying to explain to us. He's saying, this is what my kingdom is like and I'm inviting you to enter into it and experience it even now. That's actually true for someone else besides you, this metaphor, this opportunity to enter into it. It's true for children who need families, who need safe spaces. That metaphor is also true for them. It's an opportunity for them to enter into the metaphor and experience in a different way what God is doing in the world and the way that he loves us and redeems us. But the difference is they can't enter into that metaphor by their own initiative. They're completely dependent upon families inviting them into it. In other words, an orphan can't say, Jones family, I choose you. I'm coming Tuesday. Get ready. You have to say to them, "The the, the Jones family is ready. We're ready for you on Tuesday. Come into our home. Come into our family. And so by saying no to entering into that metaphor, we're not even just saying no for ourselves. We're actually excluding other people from being able to experience that reality, that that metaphor. I know that if you come to Wood's Edge regularly, I know one thing about your prayer life is that you pray the Lord's Prayer regularly because each week Pastor Jeff comes up here and he gets on his knees and he leads us and reciting the Lord's Prayer which means that at least once a week you're praying that the kingdom of God would come and that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven and I know that for many of you pro-life policy is incredibly important I've heard from many people in this community around particularly around election time how passionate they are about pro-life policy and how it informs and guides their voting well let's just have some real talk for a minute This isn't meant to be manipulative. Let's just just look up at our world and be realistic about what's happening. In the United States, there are over 400,000 children in foster care this year. Over 400,000 children who don't have safe or stable or healthy places where where they can be. And so the state has to remove them from where they are. To give you a sense of scale, that's about the size of my hometown of Tulsa, Oklahoma. In Texas alone, we have over 30,000 children in foster care in any given year. Globally, there are millions of orphans, millions of orphans, either technical orphans, their parents are, are gone or have died, or maybe just functional orphans. They don't have parents who are able or willing to, to care for them. Friends, that crisis, that reality, these overwhelming numbers, that is not what the kingdom of God looks like. That is not what it looks like when the will of God is done on earth as it is in heaven and let's be real honest that is not what a robust pro-life policy looks like pro-life policy is about more than just preventing death and right now we're looking at a world reality that does not reflect the thing that we pray for every week or the thing that many of us say we care about and so the encouragement that I'm trying to remind myself of the The prayer for us is that we would be a community that goes beyond uttering repetitive prayer and espousing principled policy but are unwilling to embody those prayers and policies. That instead we would become a community that embodies the prayers we pray and effectuates the policies that we proclaim. In other words The world outside of the church, those who don't believe in or follow Jesus, they are not impressed by our repetitive prayer or by our policy positions. Nobody is attracted by that. And we're living in a world that doesn't look a lot like the kingdom of God with respect to the orphan crisis. You know what the world finds intriguing and attractive And undeniable is when the people of God mobilize to actually embody their prayers, to actually lay down their lives to usher the kingdom of God into fuller, sharper focus, fuller measure today. When we do that, the world takes absolute notice of that. And we're actually bringing about the thing that we're pleading with God for. I don't know if you know this, but the early Christian church was known for their effusive compassion. Mid-4th century, there was a Roman emperor named Julian, and he was, he overlooked the Roman empire that he governed, and in private correspondence to a friend, here's what he wrote about the early Christian church. He said, you know what's shameful and embarrassing? Is that these Christians, this tiny little band, this little sect of religious zealots, they are caring not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. The Romans... The citizens of Rome who we promised that we're going to care for you and you're going to give your allegiance to us. Rome, the greatest state in the world. And these Christians are embarrassing us because they're making our state welfare system obsolete. We can't even do for the citizens of Rome what we've promised because the Christians are preempting it. That was the reputation of the early church. Even amidst persecution, that's what they were known for. And somehow we've drifted from that a little bit. Just this last month, I watched the lieutenant governor of Texas, Dan Patrick, get on live television and plead with people of faith. Here's what he said. This is quoted from his speech. I'm asking faith-based leaders across Texas to reach out to their congregations and communities to open their hearts and homes to the more than 31,000 foster children of Texas. So we've gone from mid-4th century to state leaders saying, man, we can't even... We can't even regulate how much compassion these Christians are doing and how they're caring for people. And, and now 1,700 years later, state leaders are looking out and going, Christians, where are you? We've got over 30,000 children in state care in the state of Texas, and we're, the state isn't equipped If you've you've seen inside state welfare or you've seen inside the child protective system, it's not equipped to give these children what they need. They need families, safe, loving families who are willing to care for them, maybe for a season, maybe for the rest of their lives. So we've gone from states recognizing what the church is about to state leaders pleading with the church to be what the church is meant to be. This is what God has designed the church to be. Throughout history, the world has recognized that The church, the Christian church, is the hope of the orphan and the sojourner and the widow and the refugee and the poor and the downtrodden. In fact, there was an agnostic who made a famous uh, address just after World War II. He was speaking to the post World War II reality in Europe and talking about all the suffering that was happening amongst children there. And he said, If we look to the Christians and find no help there, where else will we turn? Even this agnostic was recognizing if the church doesn't rise up, to meet this need, what do we have left? What other option is there? Well, friends, the numbers tell the story. There is no other option. The option is to stockpile children who are orphans and homeless and without family. Francis Chian, a pastor in California, he, he wrote a book on marriage, actually. it 's not about adoption, but he has a, a, a passage in there that I read recently. He said, we need to learn to err on the side of action because we tend to default to negligence. So many won't do anything unless they hear a voice from heaven telling them precisely what to do. Why not default to action until you hear a voice from heaven telling you to wait? For example, why not assume you should adopt kids unless you hear a voice telling you not to? That seems more biblical since God has told us that true religion is to care for the widows and orphans. I heard an interview with this man uh, unrelated to this book. And he was just talking about how this 16-year-old girl that they recently adopted, it's been one of the greatest blessings of his entire life. He said he's learned more about God through adopting his daughter than he had in decades of ministry prior to that. There's another pastor who's been very influential in my life and probably many of yours. He lives in Minneapolis and he adopted uh, cross-racially when he was 50 years old. He had a lot of hesitation about adopting at 50 for reasons that are obvious and you can appreciate. And his wife was really pushing him on that I presume there are probably some wives here today that are elbowing their husbands today and that's okay that's often how how God moves us along but this pastor when asked upon his retirement what are some of your greatest regrets in ministry he said one of my greatest regrets is not adopting sooner I think those are powerful words to to consider I recognize that not every family is well positioned to adopt And please don't hear me saying at all today that if you want to fit in at Wood's Edge or if you really want to be an A-plus Christian, you'll adopt. That's not at all what I'm saying. Um, There are absolutely families. There may be families here who want to adopt and shouldn't. Maybe you're just, you're not in a good season to adopt. Maybe you're, maybe your family's not healthy right now. Maybe you need to wait. Maybe the circumstances aren't right. That's absolutely okay. Now there are other families here who are saying, oh yeah, no, we're not well positioned to adopt. And I think perhaps you are. And in fact, I've been praying that there would be some families who think that now, and God would use this to convince them that they're more well-equipped than than they thought. If If you've got a spare bedroom in your home and a measure of patience in your heart, then you've met the threshold test. Lots of ways that we need to rally to care for orphans, though, not just through adoption. In fact, the ratio of churches to children in the United States waiting for adoption is like four to one. So, There aren't even enough children in the United States waiting for adoption for everyone to adopt, even if you wanted to. I don't know that's true globally, but my point is that that's not not the message today at all. However, the message is that every single person who follows Jesus is an ex-orphan who's been cared for and brought in through adoption. And every single follower of Jesus needs to be caring for orphans in some capacity, some respect. And so that could be through sponsoring children, through Compassion or World Vision, some of those children certainly are vulnerable or, or orphans, could be mentoring children aging out of the foster system, could be praying, could be funding. I know that some of you here today aren't in a life season or aren't ready or prepared or whatever, able to adopt or bring foster children into your home, but you, you have resources. There are other families here. In fact, there's a family with us right now who's ready to adopt, willing to bring kids into their home and they just don't have the funds. And so together as a community, We work to serve and support each other. I'll tell you right now that just a little bit that that my family has done in the last couple of years through fostering and adoption, no way we could have done that without so many families from this church coming around to encourage and support us. Families bringing meals and diapers and clothes when we have foster children dropped off. Families taking our older kids to the movies so that we can make it to a CPS visitation or to a, a, a doctor's appointment. Uh, my in-laws are becoming certified through CPS so that they could do respite care and uh, babysitting so that my wife and I could have time alone. So these kinds of things are absolutely essential. All kinds of ways that we can engage in this together. Now I said that adoption is a metaphor for the gospel. It's central to salvation. I just want to show you a very short video that depicts what this gospel looks like embodied through adoption. So take a look at this video.
1: My favorite quote of all time was our furnace repair man comes into the house, stops dead in his tracks, and says, this looks like some kind of United Nations meeting. I was born in Bangkok. Bangalore, India. Connecticut. I was born in Romania. Ethiopia. Which is in Africa. In China. <laughs> It took me decades to figure this out, but there's no physical thing that you can buy that's actually gonna give you true peace and happiness. And the pure joy that will come from a, a rescue and a ransom of a child's life is probably the most satisfying thing you can imagine. We talk about adoption. We tell them they're adopted, and we kind of tell them, you know, being born into a family, you don't even decide that. It kind of happens biologically, but when you're adopted, your parents looked out at the whole world and picked you. In Romania at least at the time when I was born um, when you were, when you were born with a, a deformity quote quote it, um, it was considered a curse by God. I was um, kind of distanced and not treated right and kind of not really getting any care that a normal baby should, which is why when I was one and a half years old I weighed nine pounds. It was rough in the, in the first year of my life, but I lived. But no matter where you were before, it's like, where you can be now, your past doesn't define that. This family has proven that, and it's just like, you have a dying boy from Romania, or starving kids from Africa, and you bring them to a place where they can be, I guess, human to the fullest, and that's a that's generous Thing. Family is everything. Family's fun! <laughs>
0: Interesting.
1: <laughs> family is just people you can be a fool around and they'll still love you. Awesome? No, should I do the Denahi face? Family is something that I can count on. <laughs> uh. mm-hmm. Family is adoption.
0: Friends in the kingdom of God, family is adoption. That's how we became part of this family. So today, how do we respond? Uh, for those of you who have professed faith in Jesus, you are in Christ. Uh, for you today, it's to realize that you're, you're there by adoption, that at great cost, at great discomfort and suffering, God has adopted you into His family and given you a full measure of inheritance. Co-heir with Jesus. Exult in that salvation. Praise God, worship your God for that reality. If you have never professed faith in Jesus, maybe you, maybe you didn't realize that the Bible says that spiritually you're an orphan. The Bible says that we're actually far from God, at entity with God, and yet the Father stands with arms wide open, ready to receive you. So today, if that's you, uh, pray a prayer of faith. Receive the gift of God through adoption and become an, an heir of God. And for all of us today, regardless of where you are, I would encourage you to just consider what is, what is the next step for you? What, what deeper level of engagement can you have to respond to the truth that we've seen in the scripture and the reality that we've seen in our world? Everybody here has the opportunity to respond in some way. Uh, there's actually a kiosk out in the, the lobby. Uh, if you want to meet with folks who have adopted or, or fostered or in that process, have questions, want to know some resources, information there's an orphan care class that meets here weekly you want to become part of that Um, that's great we would love to help you figure out a next step of engagement so let's pray together as we close our time today god we're so grateful for what you've done for us that while we were far from you you brought us near as near as children that you've adopted us into your family that you've seated us next to christ that you've given us inheritance in your kingdom that every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms is ours through the work of jesus Spirit, thank you for confirming for us our adoption and our sonship. Thank you for confirming for us the Father's love. God, we ask today that as a community of people that we would that we would be sensitive to what it is you want to do in the world. And when we pray the words of Jesus that your kingdom come and will be done, Father, that we would be open to responding even if uncomfortable, even if it requires suffering, so that your kingdom would be preeminent, that the the world that is hungry and longing for you would see this is what the kingdom of God looks like. So God, would you do that for us today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.